Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. We are approaching the days of awe. Rosh Hashanah is uh, just hours away at this point. And, you know, I think this time of year when we're reading about um, the creation of the universe and then the flood, this is really a time that like a thinking Jew may start thinking about how does all of this work exactly? Um, it happens to be that last year, um, Parshas Bereshis, um, caused a lot of drama in my household. Um, we were a science and Torah type of family. And the truth is that I think that my community in general is, I think the, the other adults in my community are, but I think when kids are younger and in school, um, the teachers may teach things more literally and with less nuance. And maybe in other households, the conversations about how we square science and Torah away may not happen as frequently as they do in my house. So both of my kids uh, went into school last year, or two, two of my kids, I should say two out of all of my kids went to school last year talking about the Big Bang Theory and evolution, and um, they got called different names from different people, things like uh, heretic, apicorus, different things like that, and um, came home with uh, some lots of emotions. Um, we went to the administrators at uh, different schools, and we said, these are appropriate beliefs, right? And we were told they were, but... Um, but not everybody is thinking about this, but um, this is certainly a question that, um, how do we square away science and Torah? This was one of the top things that was on my mind as I was becoming observant. And I would say when I speak to people who start having questions about Judaism, um, you know, as opposed to just kind of like keeping their nose down and doing what they were told, but when they start to have questions about, is this the way of life I want to continue living? Um, these are some of the questions that come up. And so, um, it's such a resource for the community when sort of the, the scholars and the, you know, the top um, educators of our community who have an understanding in both worlds can elucidate how we can, you know, sort of live in both worlds simultaneously. How do we understand, um, you know, sort of two different tracks of thought that seem like they may not work at all together, but they actually can work together. So um, there is uh, an Orthodox Jewish all-star who we honored a few years ago. Um, and I remember when uh, we were filming him, I said to him, are you gonna write a book? I would love for you to write a book. So I just found out that he wrote a book um, and I'm so delighted uh, to uh, be bringing uh, Professor, Professor Jeremy England um, to our show today. He is a theoretical biophysicist who lives in Brooklyn, Massachusetts. He was previously a physics professor at MIT and he now leads a pharma research team working at the intersection of genomics and machine learning. He has smicha from Rav Chaim Bravender, which this is new. This was, he did not have this when he was an all-star before. And he enjoys studying topics at the intersection of Torah and scientific reasoning. His upcoming book titled Every Life is on Fire is about the burning bush, statistical physics, and the boundary between living and non-living matter. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great pleasure to get the chance to speak with you. Yeah, and I love, I love the continued updates. The thing I can always count on for All-Stars is that they continue to do All-Starry sorts of things. So, um, you know, there's unfortunately bad headlines that get made, and then um, the All-Stars are pretty good usually for continuing to make good headlines. So um, I feel like this is such, like I said at the beginning, such an important thing um, to give to the Jewish people because, um, you know, there's the internet. There's, you know, information out there. Anybody that has, you know, a little bit of complex thought will start to reread these passages, you know, as the Torah is beginning now from the beginning um, and start to wonder, how do I square this away? So 
I want to get into this book in a few minutes, but I'd like to first sort of lay a little bit of a background for our listeners who aren't familiar with you yet as, as how you got to where you are today. So if you could start off by sharing with our listeners um, where you grew up and how you grew up Jewishly. Sure. Um, so I was, I was born in Boston. I grew up mostly in New Hampshire. And I grew up uh, in a home where I think we had a conscious sense of, of Jewish identity on the one hand, but not a lot of content with respect to observance, uh, study of Torah and things like that. And for me, in, in childhood and headed into early adulthood, I was very focused on my, my secular studies, academics, you know, becoming a scientist. And I really followed that to the hilt until the end of college and starting grad school and really growing up as a theoretical physicist and you know a biologist to some degree as well um just thinking in the terms of how to relate to the world that i was learning uh in my scientific studies and then uh, you know there's a whole long story one could tell but standing on one leg uh i, I you know and, and saying very briefly i reached a point in life where i was caused to start reflecting and speculating a bit you know this is when i was studying in the uk um after I finished my first degree, um, I started visiting Israel, I started learning Hebrew, I started studying the Torah and, and discovered a lot of things there that really just drew me in further with respect to my, my love for Am Yisrael and uh, for the Jewish people and, and also for Torah and, and what it brings to one's understanding of the world. And so that was, at this point was, I don't know, what, 15 years ago or more that that all began. Um, and I think what ended up happening was I was kind of grown up as a scientist before I really started taking the Jewish tradition seriously. And so I've been working on understanding how each of these things relates to each other since then with a lot of motivation to, to make it work because I care very deeply about both things and don't want to let go of either of them. Can you now tell me about what does it mean that you were grown up as a scientist? Are there other, are your parents scientists or did you have an early influence? Like when, how, why did you realize that this was your calling? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, my father is an economist, so he's a social scientist, but I don't think that it was one of these things where, uh, you know, my sister and I were somehow given this very strong exposure to the natural sciences per se except that it was something that I really took to. You know, I used to love dinosaurs when I was really little. And then I really loved, I don't know, astronomy or something when I was a little bit older. And, you know, whenever I would get exposed to these topics, I would just get really excited about them and want to learn more. Um, and, and so um, it, it was very much me following my own excitement uh, to understand how it all fits together, I guess. And I think I was attracted, especially once I really started learning a little bit more rigorously, you know, the idea that you could explain things that seem like totally different phenomena of the world as being different expressions of the same theory, um, you know, that you can, you know, using one set of equations, you could explain simultaneously things to do with magnets and things to do with light bulbs. And you know, for example, you know, electricity and magnetism are two sides of the same coin, you know, that kind of theoretical unification in describing the world is always very attractive. And I think most people who go into theoretical physics feel that. And at the same time, biology also is really marvelous because living things have this order to them and this, this organization to them uh, that's really breathtaking when you get into the details because you see how well put together living things are to accomplish these very specialized tasks. And it's 
really amazing to behold how they can do that, even though every tiny piece that they're made of is very seemingly inanimate and dumb and simple. And just somehow the novelty of the combination of those parts can give rise to all of this functional complexity. So I think I was always really uh, captivated by both those uh, ideas or experiences in learning science. And then I just kind of wanted to keep doing both of them as my studies continued. Did you have a notion in your, I guess you sort of felt like um, maybe strongly associated as being a proud Jew or some connection to your people without um, maybe belief or ritual connected to it. Did you have any notion growing up as a secular Jew into science that believers are a bunch of, you know, crazy, um, like non-thinking types or did you not assign, I mean, I did, or did you not assign judgment or? Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I take the, the sense of what you're saying. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a fair characterization. I mean, I don't, I don't think it got particularly strident or nasty in our household, but I do think that there was a kind of dismissiveness in how we tended to approach these things. You know, and partly this, this came out of my, my mother's family's personal experience. You know, her parents were the sole or nearly sole survivors of each of their respective families during the war where they lost siblings and parents and, and all the like um, to all the uh, events of, of World War II. Um, and I think they came out of that experience really with a, a shattered sense of uh, relationship to like the idea that it, there's a benevolent creator of the world that cares about the Jewish people is obviously a particularly bitter, bitter and difficult pill for right. Holocaust survivors to swallow. Um, and so that was kind of the starting point. Um, and then also there, there was not like a really rich tissue of exposure to tradition that my mother could benefit from first growing up in communist Poland. And then when they escaped to, to West Germany, they are wild for, they were refugees in a community where there were observant Jews, but who, by my mother's account, which I very much believe, were very clannish and even kind of disdainful of the Jews who had come in from Poland, who were sort of sheltering in their community, but didn't really know anything about Torah, and so it didn't matter. And so I think she just got a very negative exposure early on, the idea of what it meant to be religious in a Jewish context, um, because of, in some cases, just how she was treated by people that she happened to meet. And so it all kind of built up from there. So by the time she was raising her own family, I think she felt like this mattered to her a lot in one sense, like who she was. She wanted her children to know that they were Jews, but then what content to put into that vessel was very much a question mark. And when you don't have strong convictions at the outset and you're in the kind of dilute and, you know, diffuse melting pot of America, you can easily end up in a place where there just aren't any resources to learn more. I mean, New Hampshire doesn't have very many people, let alone Jews. And so sure. I, I think we, we didn't really have a lot of options in that regard. So it was hard to discover alternatives. Totally. So let's now jump into a little bit more about what you do, because I think when, when I first learned about your work, you know, I sort of thought about, I had biology, ninth grade, then chemistry, then physics. The idea of bringing biology and physics together like you do, and then it's theoretical. Um, that's sort of, I don't know if most people are familiar with that line of work. So can you explain a little about like the, you know, the area that you specialize in and then also the theory that you came up with that got you coined as um, the next Darwin, you know, that made some noise a few years ago. That's how uh, we got um, 
we, we found out about you? Sure. So I, I'm very much a, a multidisciplinary scientist. My, my background, you know, my first degree was in biochemistry, although I was also studying a lot of physics at the same time. And it kind of goes back to what I mentioned before, that I was both attracted to something in theoretical physics that's about this kind of elegant simplicity of how you unify different things. And at the same time, there's the kind of particularity of biology and exactly how each little piece of a living thing's, thing works is often quite fascinating to characterize and figure out. Um, and so I always, or I shouldn't say always, but I think as I learned more, I felt sure I wanted to combine both of those things in what I did. Um, so I tried to stay in this field that sort of is this, you know, rough boundary in between fields really that both tries to use methods from theoretical physics, but also to examine carefully the workings of pieces of living things at the molecular level um, that you might call theoretical biophysics. And for a long time, I was working in an area called protein folding, uh, which is really about how these molecules in living cells, like in the human body or other living things, are these chains of different chemicals that are strung together. And they're strung together in such a way that they sort of are like these self-pitching tents that fold in, into exactly the right shape when you throw them in water so that the shape gives them a particular function at the molecular level. Like maybe they can help you break down a certain sugar that you just ate or what have you. So um, that was very much biophysics with theory pitched at the level of can I use the theory I learn in physics to explain the workings of a particular example of a piece of a living thing that I know. And so it's a very fruitful kind of enterprise on the one hand, but it doesn't really touch the question of where life came from uh, or, or how things get lifelike in the first place, because you just take the fact of life's existence for granted and try to figure out what makes it tick. Um, and, I, and I think when I, when I was starting my lab at MIT, I was starting to be drawn in the direction of this sort of upside down version of the question, which is more like, can you use ideas from theoretical physics to start explaining not how this piece of a living thing works, but more like why would matter that was initially not doing something like that and, and not impressively lifelike in any way, why would it start to become more lifelike? Is there anything you can use physics for that will help you illuminate the question of when stuff that doesn't look at all lifelike starts to get into shapes that look much more lifelike? Got it. And so, and so this is how the, the, um, the, the term, the next Darwin kind of got coined because you were looking for, um, sort of that missing link in, in evolution, essentially of where things went from being just plain matter to being living. Yeah. I mean, I think terms like that, I will believe to, you know, the internet and the often exaggerated tone in which, um, uh, different, uh, epithets can, can be, Flung around, but I I think that um, if if we're trying to make the connection out of evolution, I guess the point would be that when you think about the classic notion of how evolution helps us understand function in biology, the notion is that if I have a living thing, I know it usually can reproduce and therefore make copies of itself that resemble it. Like human beings have children, and single-celled bacteria divide into two cells, you know, a single cell can turn into two cells, et cetera. And so you have all these self-copying things going on in life. And then you also have the possibility of different versions of the copy, which differ slightly uh, in their properties, 
having different ability to survive and reproduce. And so, you know, you turn the crank on that and then you start to be able to explain why you might have differentiation into different successful ways of surviving and reproducing in a given environment. But that whole argument, that whole argument of Darwinian natural, natural selection clearly requires the idea of parents and grandparents of, of, of already having things to copy themselves that are alive. And then you can explain how you get refined adaptations in living things over time. But what's a different kind of question is if I have something that's not alive, if I just have some working materials some matter, you know, the basic atomic or at least very tiny building blocks out of which life is made, which each individual piece of will seem quite inanimate and dominant will just be able to kind of spin around and stick to things and move from place to place, you know, on straight tracks and such like billiard balls. If I'm talking in those terms, why would combinations of that kind of stuff ever combine in ways that look more or less lifelike? Because there are some things in the world that life does that are not distinctive of life. Like life can fall out of a tree and, and hit the ground. And so too could a rock, right? If you dropped a rock from the same height, it would fall and hit the ground. So falling in gravity is not a physical property that distinguishes life. Um, but living things also make copies of themselves and find sources of energy in their environment and harvest them. And they, you know, repair themselves and they sense things in their environment and make predictions about their future that are somewhat accurate based on what's going on in their environment. So there are all these things that living things do that if you try to define them as a physical phenomenon, you actually could start to say, okay, well, maybe this is not unique to life, but it's at least distinctive of it. So can I understand the physics of when things are allowed to make copies of themselves, when they might start to make copies of themselves, et cetera. Um, and so the research program that I ended up developing for my lab at MIT, which continues now um, uh, in its new guise uh, in the academic position I have at Georgia Tech. And then I have added on some other things, as you mentioned, um, uh, which have become a big part of the work that I now do in industry. Um, but, but the basic science is, you know, continuing and, and still about lifelike self-organization. Um, the question is, um, how uh, do you define aspects of lifelike behavior in physical terms so you can start making theories of how that emerges? And I wouldn't say we're anywhere near done with it, but we at least, I think, have hopefully made a dent or, or defined an interesting direction um, where you start to be able to explain some things uh, that maybe we had not developed a language for explaining before. So um, you're, you know, you're viewing this through a religious lens. Um, as we mentioned earlier, you got smicha since I saw you last. Um, so you're definitely very interested in this. Um, and like we talked about, the media has all sorts of names they've thrown on you, including, I think, one article, Try to Take Your Theory. And I think their like, subheading was God on the Rails, that they almost wanted to say that your theory um, did away with God, but actually now jumping towards your book, Every Life is on Fire, you want to say that this theory that you're working with actually points towards God. So I guess, can you give us a little bit um, of an understanding about how is this book different than other science and Torah books than we've seen before? How much of a science background do you need to be able to understand it? What can the reader expect? Yeah, sure. So I, I, I tried to write it in a way where I'm hoping that it could be interesting to people coming from a variety of different directions. Um, and so I'll, I could, I probably should start by just describing a bit of what's in it and then I can explain what I mean by that. But uh, basically I wanted to write a book for broad audiences and people not necessarily with 
any kind of deep background in the natural sciences that can describe in conceptually accessible terms what the argument looks like for how you start to explain why in certain circumstances that are definable, you might get more lifelike behavior out of matter that wasn't initially doing anything particularly lifelike. And so it's a discussion of, on the one hand, the physics of how energy flows through particulate matter that can combine in different ways. And, and the key idea, you know, we could obviously do a whole discussion just about the, the physics of this, but trying to summarize in one sentence, I think the key idea is that when you put together bits of matter in different shapes, that you know, the same bits, the same building blocks can be assembled in different shapes, those different shapes will kind of act as receivers for energy from the environment that are different in how much energy they can absorb and what kinds of motions the energy produces. And so if you think about the flow of energy through matter as driving a search through the space of possible shapes that those combinations can explore, then what gets interesting is that the energy you're absorbing is both the reason you're changing shape and is also very connected to the particular shape that you're currently in. So you start to be able to appreciate that the shape that you're currently in biases what kind of energy you absorb and how, which will then affect the way you search through new shapes and you kind of close the loop on that. And before you know it, you could end up with a shape that's quite finely tuned to the particular pattern of the sources of energy in the environment. So there's a much longer discussion you could go into with that. Um, but that's the physics and that's really, you know, on its own barrel, something that was just developing as scientific research um, in my lab for quite a few years at MIT and, and which um, I'm still keenly interested in, we're, we're still pushing forward. And I wouldn't say that I've ever approached this saying, oh, let me kind of go into the Torah and see what I find there and then sort of uh, make up a, a scientific theory based on that. Because I think that that's kind of a, upside down use of the Sorry. Torah and also not a very sensible way of defining a program of scientific research. However, um, what has been very exciting and gratifying to me is that as I've understood the physics better of what I was working on, I was beginning to notice things in Torah that sounded like commentaries on some of the same ideas, mm -hmm. uh, if you read them in the right way. Um, and that started to seem particularly important to me because as I was starting to think about writing a book for people in general to, to learn a bit about the physics, I was conscious, as you mentioned, of the fact that some people kind of want to take science of this kind. And because this question of the origins of life or the universe or whatever is so contentious with respect to certain readings of the Hebrew Bible and, you know, kind of the, the countercurrent in secular culture against those readings, uh, there are, there are people who are going to want to take the idea that physics can maybe explain better a little bit where life might have come from um, uh, and, and use that as sort of a, a stake in the heart of biblical religion and say, oh, well, now we really, really finally totally disproved the Bible or something like that, which I, I think you, know, you, can you can attack on its intellectual merits and just say this is a silly way of reading the Bible in the first place to, to be trying to kind of uh, find disproof of it along those lines, and I could expand on that. But I, but, but I think that more to the point, for me, writing a book about my own work, I just wasn't going to accept the possibility that I could write a book where someone could not know who I was and what I thought about this issue, because I'd be too conscious of the fact that it's going to come to the fore no matter what, as this becomes part of a public discussion. Because when you talk about the boundary between life and non-life, it never really is just a dry scientific discussion 
or even a very fascinating scientific discussion, which it is, it additionally be becomes something that touches people's uh, broader questions about who they are and you know what they're made of and what that means about how they should act and, and all these other things. So I wanted to weave in, in this way that where you can't disentangle it, um, a, a discussion from the standpoint of Torah, some of the same concepts, so that someone would have to take the book as a whole and say, okay, so here's the science and here's a kind of philosophical slash poetic commentary on the science if you're coming from a secular perspective, or here's a, you know, Dvar Torah, a discussion from the standpoint of Torah if you're coming, from, from, for example, from a Jewish perspective, um, or here's a, a sort of exegesis of the Hebrew Bible if you have a, a different religious perspective that still sees that text as authoritative. And I, I try to do it in a way where people coming from different directions could, you know, on the one hand, into engagement with the other aspect um, and maybe kind of see that they really harmonize quite well and don't really end up in tension with each other. So who is this, or who are you hoping will read this book? We have about uh, three minutes left. Is this Jews, non-Jews, religious, not religious? Um, do you know? I would say I'm hoping all of the above because I really, I, 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 first of all, I just enjoyed this discussion, you know, coming from many different directions. Um, I also really tried to write it in a way where, on the one hand, if someone is looking for a Dvar Torah, um, you know, they're coming from a, a, a perspective of their, their feet are planted in Torah, then definitely, I hope um, they will maybe see Torah in a new light and in a way where they could discover something that the Torah is really telling them that matters to them as Odei Hashem who want to know what the Torah says. Um, at the same time, um, if someone is much less familiar with the Hebrew Bible and much less sure how much they trust it, um, they will be able to learn a lot about the science because really that's most of the words in the book are, are about that aspect of it. But then in addition, there's there's something that's written in a way where I think it tries to be an inviting philosophical commentary, sort of using the, the language uh, of Tanakh, of the, of the Hebrew Bible, to try to get at some of these issues. Because at the end of the day, it's thematic. The whole book is written around the signs given to Moses at the burning bush, the, the staff that turns into a serpent, the snowy skin um, that is called tzara'at in Hebrew that Moshe beholds on his own skin. Um, and the, the water uh, or Nile River water and, and dust of the earth that mix to form blood on the ground, that those signs have many different dimensions to them, but you can sort of unpack them from the perspective of the physics of the boundary between life and non-life and discover not only that the Torah is really saying, okay, this is something about how the world works, but also here's a commentary about what the Torah thinks about this aspect of the world that really is relevant to the whole question of what do I what do I make of biophysics if I'm trying to, to serve Hashem? So I, I think that there's a lot of different streams that could meet potentially, and I hope a lot of different kinds of people might be able to enjoy it. Amazing. Sounds fascinating. I'm so glad that you, uh, you took the time to put this all down because I think, as I mentioned at the beginning, there's a lot of people that are really working to square away what feels like two very different uh, realms. 
Um, and I think even um, knowing someone as smart as you has his feet in both places um, and is giving over. We, we can understand every bit of it, um, at least, you know, to, to grasp a little bit of it. So um, just to remind our uh, listeners, Every Life is on Fire, How Thermodynamics Explains the Origins of Living Things by Jeremy England. It went on sale this week. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle. Um, you can get a hardcover shipped to you. Um, this could be some good high holiday reading. Um, thank you so much for your time, Jeremy. We wish you continued Hatzlacha. Thank you so much. Shana Tova. Shana Tova to you as well and to our listeners as well. And you can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.